Ladies and gentlemen, fellow alumni, sort of hangers-on, <laughs> special guests, good evening and welcome. And what better way to officially launch UWA's very valuable research week? What better way to kick off with uh, an analytical, thought-provoking debate on the merits, ingredients and intellectual pursuit of happiness? Before we get underway tonight, let's make one thing clear, perfectly clear. We're not talking about happiness as a single, narrowly defined concept of a mental state, are we? No. <laughs> Maybe. Given our panellists the heads up tonight, they're allowed to disagree with me and each other. So it's open season on happiness tonight. We're not defining it at all. I guess, uh, to paraphrase Forrest Gump, happiness is as happiness does. And we have our esteemed panel, ladies and gentlemen, uh, who have studied the finer points of happiness in their various abstract incarnations in many different ways, as you'll find out. We'll come to some of them in a moment. I might say my only technical experience with this subject, uh, apart from being an alumni and being very grateful to be invited here tonight, is a story we were doing a, a few years ago in Bhutan for 60 Minutes for a story on just that. In fact, the story slug, as we say in the business, or the story title was The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, and at that point, of course, it was the world's newest democracy. That's why we were doing it. It had just turned from a kingdom to a democracy. They just uh, had a vote uh, voluntarily, too. It was unbelievably impressive. And still the only country in the world that enshrines the concept of being happy in official government policy, which I think is an amazing concept. Uh, they call it gross national happiness, or GNP. <laughs> Uh, and, that's, and that's their policy. No doubt, of course, if we had it, the Senate would block it. <laughs> Pauline Hanson would claim it was an Islamic conspiracy. <laughs> Can't be happy. <laughs> We'd have a non-binding plebiscite on happiness. <laughs> anyway, interesting, uh, interestingly, has anybody here been to Bhutan? Yes. Well, you would know then, uh, madam, that uh, they also grow or... It just happens to be that marijuana grows wildly on the sides of the road. And, I, and when I saw that, I was wondering about the coincidence. But anyway, I digress. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, to help us examine happiness, we have Dr Christina Davies, a research fellow at the School of Population Health. We have Dr Inga Christofferson, associate lecturer at UWA's business school. No relation to Chris? No, no, no. It would make you very unhappy to be asked that a million times over your life. Yes, I have. Yeah. Uh, Dr Jenny Roger, Associate Professor and Senior Research Fellow in Experimental and Regenerative Neurosciences. Uh, Michael Baldwin, soon to be doctor, PhD student, Michael. And uh, last but certainly not least, Professor Andrew Page. Andrew is Professor and Associate Dean in Graduate Research Studies at the School of Psychology. So. Thank you very much for all participating tonight and being involved. I'll say that from the outset. We'll get the niceties out of the way before we get stuck in. Okay. So we're happy. Uh, also, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like this to be interactive. So after we have a bit of a discussion here, I'll call on anybody who would like to ask a question of any one of the panellists tonight uh, or just even throw open a question for anybody's uh, reaction. Uh, please feel free, but we'll come to that in, in just a moment. Uh, let's, Christina, let's, uh, let's start with you. Because okay. you... I mean, I just like... Is that loud enough? Yeah. I could start anywhere, but let's be random. Okay. Um, now, you've looked at the effects of cultural experiences, haven't you? Arts engagement, yes. Arts engagement. Now, mm -hmm. how do you define arts when it comes to happiness? Well, we didn't try to do it ourselves. We actually went to 280 experts around the world. We asked them what arts were. We then got their responses. 
and then we set it back and we asked when they engage in those sorts of activities, how much is that worth? So we actually got our definition of arts engagement. Sorry, we can't hear. You can't? Okay, we're Let me, is that better? We just lift no? that volume a bit. That's, that's great. I'm happy that you yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is going to be a recurring theme, isn't it? <laughs> All right, I'll talk louder. How's so, that? So, All so right, so arts engagement basically was performing uh, arts, visual arts, design and craft, literature, <laughs> electronic arts, community and cultural festivals, fairs and events. So it was actually the range. But what we were interested in was the art that people do as part of their everyday life for enjoyment, entertainment or as a hobby. Like we talk a lot about, say, um, arts therapy. So, you know, say if you're depressed, there might be art therapy that you think about doing. But what we were interested in was, say, with sport, okay, you've got 30 minutes, or there's a health message, which is fine 30, so people try to do 30 minutes per day in terms of sport. But say if you hurt your leg, you do sport therapy. So in the same way you have art, so say when you read books, creative writing, colouring books, number one and two bestseller on Amazon at the moment. So there are all these things that we do in our everyday life that actually make us happy, that feel good, that you know, we enjoy them. And that's what we were interested in. What are the effects of arts in our everyday life? But, and, and, and just in the sort of paraphrasing that, you found, yep. didn't you, that if you had, say, an increase of two hours a week, Yes. Two hours a week, wasn't it? Not two hours a day. So two hours a week would increase substantially that feeling, that result. So that's 15 minutes per day. So that's like listening to three of your favourite songs. So people who engaged in two hours per week or 15 minutes per day, there was a threshold effect. And they actually had better mental wellbeing than those who engaged in none or lower levels of engagement. So that's kind of exciting. It's kind of empowering. But is that a long-lasting effect? How do you mean? Well, we know, don't we, if we hear, for instance, our favourite song on the radio, we, it makes us automatically happy, but yeah. how long does the effect last? Well, what we did was we actually, so we did a telephone survey of 700 West Australians, and we used the Warwick and Environmental Wellbeing Scale. So that actually, um, that scale looks at your wellbeing in the past two weeks. So people who were engaging in the arts for those two weeks actually had better mental wellbeing. We'll come back to these notions and we'll get our panellists to also to comment on them uh, from their own perspective. But Michael, let's just go to you for a moment because your research surrounds this notion of the good life, yes. doesn't it? And without being married to Felicity Kendall, uh, <laughs> how does that make you happy? I mean, how do you, you know, what are we striving for? How do you define the good life? Yeah, sure. Look, I think it's a really important question. I mean, often, you know, asking... If I sort of get to the good life, I'll sort of comment on happiness. I mean, often when people say, asking someone, are they happy, is less akin to saying something like, you know, are you hungry, which you sort of have a sort of unmediated, private, phenomenological access to. It's more akin maybe to say something like, you know, have you got integrity, which, you know, most morally reflective people say, you know, under certain circumstances at some times, um, for the most part, in the right measure. And I think often what happens is, and you know, you sort of said earlier, and just to be controversial, I know we're meant to agree furiously, but um, you know, you were talking. Let's get straight to what you know, what happiness is, and you know, the causes and correlates. I think where philosophy is quite useful is often taking a step back and going, look, when people are talking about happiness, 
they're often talking about really different concepts, even within those concepts. So, um, and you know, they may think they're agreeing, but they're actually talking about different things. So, uh, philosophers are very fond of uh, thought experiments, intuition pumps, and one of them that might make this accessible is is uh, what we call a crib test. So you think of when you're, you know, your first child's born on that first night and you're looking down at them and you're going, I, I just wish them happiness. Well, what are you really saying here? And I don't think some people, when they're talking about happiness, they're talking about a psychological condition, a, a, a mental state or state of mind, like a phenomenological or, or positive effect. So they're thinking of, like, you know, uh, joy or happiness or, or you know, or uh, Pleasure, pleasure or something like that. And I don't think we're really wishing that on our child then. We're talking about something different, which is well-being. So well-being is leading a life that's good for you individually. So um, it's more a value notion rather a, than a sort of descriptive concept like happiness is. So we're often saying to lead a life that's good for you individually is, um, you know, might be full of, full of the intrinsic goods that are worthwhile. So, you know, like uh, achievement, say, or um, uh, uh, pleasure or relationships or something like that. But even after that, I don't think often when we're saying, looking down on this child, I just wish you happiness, even then we're just, we're not, it's part of it, but we're not just meaning well-being either. So, well, I think we're talking about something called the good life, which is rather a convoluted way of getting there, but mm. is we're not thinking of, uh, someone like Ted Bundy, like the serial killer, and you know, it's on on some accounts of um, of happiness or um, well-being. Um, it may very well be that Ted Bundy was very happy in, in terms of his positive effect. He might have got a lot of pleasure out of what he was doing. It may have even been possible that he had high well-being. I mean, if if um, well-being consists in leading a life that's good for you individually in in, in your own lights. So that's, he, a, that's a very good point, isn't it? So happiness is different for everybody. Well, do we all do we all agree on that, or do we have a well, standard happiness? <laughs> Barometer. Well, Does anybody, any of our panellists, disagree with that notion? <laughs> I have to disagree. I think there is a happiness scale. I think you can get a number. You could standardise happiness. Well, there is a scale. I don't know if you can stand it, but yeah. <laughs> I think happiness has to be measured, and that's one of the challenges that yeah. if we're going to study and understand happiness, then we need to be able to measure it. And a lot of the discussion that we've been having is what are we measuring? Mm. Spoken like a true researcher. You see. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's one of the things I'm grappling with now. That's why I'm slightly unhappy because I, <laughs> I'm standing. I'm Are you with sure? you. Well, I've got a group of brainiacs here, an old economics, you know, economics. slogger from the days when there were dinosaurs in the sunken garden. So bear with me on this. But Michael, just to pick up on that, so you were talking about pleasure versus happiness, you know, sort of the hedonistic desires that we may confuse with a happy state. I am, and I think philosophies traditionally had some issues with, with pleasure as it's cashed out. So, and they typically sort of coalesce around some areas. So one is um, bad pleasures, one is mad pleasures, and, and one sort of around reality. So obviously bad pleasures would be, you know, um, Hitler may have well been, you know, or say Genghis Khan might have, might have got a lot of pleasure out of what they're doing. But, that's not a meaningful, worthwhile life, and that's one aspect. So one criticism coalesce around sort of um, you know bad pleasures. The next is around mad pleasures. So uh, there's a famous thought experiment. Robert Nozick talks about a you know an Ivy League student, a UWE graduate probably, um, but enormously talented in economics or um, you know some other area. But they just want to count blades of grass. Like that gives them an enormous amount of pleasure. So they just, the greatest pleasure they get is just counting blades of grass and they squander their life. And so 
you know, they might be happy, but is that really a meaningful, worthwhile life? And the sort of third group of criticisms that have traditionally before, you know, that might be important was uh, in, in philosophies have been around, uh, around sort of uh, that connection with reality. So another thought experiment, um, a famous one is about the experience machine. So where you could plug into this experience machine. So each of you consider that you're plugged into this machine. You can have any sort of experience you want. You could be climbing Mount Everest, dating a supermodel, uh, however you might cash out happiness or whatever that might be. But we don't just want to feel that pleasure. We want some connection with how things really are. So pleasure isn't that important because like, I don't want to have an authentic relationship with my wife or uh, feel like in this experience machine that's stimulating my mind that my kids love me. I genuinely want my children to love me, that, that, that I've inculcated values in them and I've demonstrated behaviours that are are good. So um, they've so traditionally been the three um, criticisms of pleasure as, as happiness. Okay, so I'll, first thing tomorrow I'll cash out of that investment in the software company of virtual reality that I've... It's <laughs> <laughs> a losing Cancel. But uh, Inga, can we pick this up because this is sort of getting into your territory, isn't it? Because sure you, you're studying the sort of the economic relationship. So we count grass a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Too shame. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of grass? <laughs> Just gone full circle, thank you. So, uh, what, you know, materialistically, because the old cliche, money can't buy you happiness, mm -hmm. is that true or not? Uh, well, it depends. It depends. So, well, I come at this from microeconomists looking at survey data perspective and basically just comparing people who are happy, who report that they are happy and who report that they are not happy and look at who are those individuals, how can we tell them apart. And here I have to, I have to preface this by something and that is we don't ask people are you feeling uh, amazingly pleasurable emotions right now when we ask these questions. We're asking them how satisfied are you with your life compared to how you feel it ought to be perhaps. And so it is an evaluative question, it is a reflective question. It is not about effect, it is not about pleasure. And so the beauty of using this data is that you are putting the value judgment of what constitutes a good life onto the individual. And that frees me up from making any value judgments about what constitutes a good life or not. And I think that's a good thing. It's got its uh, downsides, but never mind. And so based on this data, we can look at who is happy and who is not. If we're looking across people who have very little um, income, wealth, or um, life, um, poor life circumstances, and people who have much, there is a difference. But so, in general, people who have more money are happier. But the difference is not necessarily as large as you think it is. And there is a lot of noise in this data. So there's clearly a lot of other variables besides material circumstances that matter. Okay, so two different people, two different sets of tables, and you're asking them to tick satisfied, not satisfied, always satisfied, you know, very satisfied. So one person's got a million dollars, one person's got ten dollars, mm. and they're asked to fill in the same form. So mm. what does that come down to? Expectations? I think so. I think you got to the end of the conclusion, so... Well, I'm yeah. just, you know, so I'm just thinking, I'm trying to, I'm following exactly your line yeah. of thought, so... We so lower the why do we see this difference? Why is there so much noise? Right, so we have if we have less money, we sort of lower the bar as to what should make us happy. Therefore, mm. we get there quicker. Is that too... If, let, let me rephrase your question for you, maybe. If everyone had the same amount of ex same expectations about what a good life, what constitutes a good life in terms of what life circumstances will give you a good life, 
then we would have like a, for you, upward sloping curve, right? If you have little, you would feel this good, and if you have more, you would feel this good. Uh, but of course, everyone has come into it with different expectations and different thoughts about what they're considered to be, what is poor, good, or excellent. And because of that, we get a lot of noise in the data. And so a poor person might be very happy, and I would argue that that's because the poor person may have uh, expect much less. And a person who has gone through uh, law school, have got a successful career, if you gave them the same salary as a person who empties bins in the office building, chances are they would feel very differently about those income levels. Yeah, and maybe that is just as it should be. Their happiness but would change substantially. Okay, well, let's, let's go on from that because we're then talking about expectations and conditions that are delivered. And I think, Andrew, that's probably where you come in because your specialty surrounding suicide would seem on the surface, I think, to me at least, to be sort of counterintuitive to this subject. But the study of suicidal tendencies, which is the exact opposite of happiness, what's, what's that taught us about, about happiness? If you think about suicide, you're why somebody might want to kill themselves. You might start by thinking, okay, well, that person must want to actually be dead. What we've been finding in our research is what's predicting of that is there is an element to that, but it's, there's also another component, which is a loss in the wish to be alive, which isn't the same as wanting to not be alive. So it's that losing that zest for life, if you like, that meaning, that purpose, that why, why am I here, what do I want? And so we've been looking at some of the predictors of, of that loss of that zest for life. And two of the important predictors seem to be thwarted, thwarted belongingness and, and perceived burdensomeness. So by thwarted belongingness, I mean that we're all social beings. We want to be in relationship with other people. And when that need for, for belongingness is thwarted, combined with a sense that we perceive ourselves to be a burden on others, makes us feel like, I want to leave. I don't want to play anymore. So disconnection, so total that, disconnection. It's, yeah, it brings about that disconnection. And so you can think... But interestingly, if you turn those around, those are the same factors that seem to be correlated with what it means to um, feel happy. Inga, I mean, this is why we need to have a number of different people on a panel like this, because the way Inga was talking, classic um, economics, where if we just had this, we would have this relationship and there'd be all this noise around it from a perspective of a um, psychologist, the noise is the interesting bit. It's why, why, why aren't, the, the fact that everybody isn't on that straight line is the exciting bit. And some of that noise is the social relationships, that feeling that, and I, I should emphasise with suicide, it's not that the person is a burden on others, it's that they perceive themselves. Because when somebody kills themselves, they'll write a note like, you'll be much better off without me. And the rest of the family saying, we're not, there's a great hole left. So it, but it is that, um, that perception. So feeling that we belong and that we are valued by others are things that make us happy. Uh, Jenny, can we just go to you? Because you've been looking at this nature versus nurture scenario, you know, how flexible the brain is to absorb or to change, how malleable, I guess, it is. 
how, how flexible is it really, is the brain, to be able to make us feel happy? And I'm, I'm not but, talking necessarily about just, you know... But, I mean, that's a, that's a very good question. Medical. There are areas in the brain that are known to support happiness. So in a very basic experiment, you can electrically stimulate one part of the brain and it will make you laugh, it will make you feel happy. So just an electrical activity in the brain will elicit happiness. Whether that's what we've all been talking about is another matter. And that particular brain region, if you ask people subjectively how happy are you, how satisfied are you with your life, the happier people on the scale will have bigger regions in that part of the brain, and that correlates. What, temporarily, or...? It, it's a snapshot in time, so we don't know how much that has changed, we don't know how much it will change in the future, but a snapshot in time, how happy are you in your life? If you're very happy, then your brain region, your rostral anti uh, anterior cingulate cortex will be bigger than somebody who is not happy. And when those people in turn experience happy thoughts, that anterior cingulate cortex will light up as well. So there is a structure that correlates with the amount of happiness, and when you're happy, it's also activated. So can I extrapolate that? Because I think for the layperson anyway, you know, we're always told about physical fitness. You know, go for a jog, endorphins, you know, that's the, the sort of biology 101 thing, isn't it? Is that a, is that a similar thing? I mean, can I, can I then say, okay, if the endorphins go into that particular part of the brain, if you're a constant fitness nut, you will be happier? There are two different aspects to it, and we've had extensive discussions about this, because there's the idea that you have a bigger brain region of that particular brain region, so it makes you predisposed to be happy. You were just born that way. But then there's the other school of thought that says, well, by being happy and experiencing a lot of happy events, that will make that part of the brain bigger. And we don't have any evidence in either way. We haven't done longitudinal studies. We haven't asked a group of people to be happy and a group of people to be sad. <laughs> Although as a scientist, I would love to do that. Um, so there are a number of limitations to what we can extrapolate from the data. But there is clearly uh, an organic structure in the brain that supports happiness. And we know that the brain is flexible. You here tonight, you're learning. Your brain is plastic. You're thinking about what we're talking about. So your brains are changing. And that, therefore, has the possibility to feed back into your level of happiness. It's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, yes, no, I think you'll jump in. I, yeah. uh, I probably should have cleared this with you before, but I'll take a chance. So I've come across some research about how uh, physical behaviour affects uh, various different hormones. This is not my expert area, running around in the bloodstream, which then changes the way we feel about stuff. And so the simple act of smiling, apparently, is the quickest and most effective way of becoming happy. And that's why so, we have laughter yoga. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, it yoga? takes a, takes a while to get rich. Totally in the meantime, true. just smile. It works. It wonders. So there is clearly a feedback mechanism there. And what I would like to know is whether you, whether you could have, to the extent to which you have some sort of input into that feedback loop of you have a capacity to be happy, and so you do happy things, you smile and you do happy thoughts, that increases your capacity to be happy in the future, and so you have this feedback loop going on. I don't know whether yeah, there's no, any I evidence. I think that's exactly the, the evidence that people, or the ideas that we have saying, can we make ourselves happier by being happier? And we know that the general state of happiness, the sort of good life ideas that we've talked about, correlate very closely when you ask somebody, do you feel well today, right now, at this very instant? So there's a very close correlation with your pleasurable state compared to your general well-being. Um, and, but how those two influence each other, I don't know. And as I say, the experiments are very difficult to do, but it would be fascinating to look at those things. So are you saying it's a stimulus? It's not just a physical reaction, mm. like someone yawns, you yawn. Yep. 
I'm it's someone smiles. That's a physical thing, right? But it's someone like, they say, laughing is infectious. Someone smiles, you smile. That's the stimulus, physical stimulus, yep. or mental, as Jenny say. Is that is that going straight to that part of the brain? Well, it's uh, it's the the smiling, the act of smiling, and even I have read. I hope this is correct. The pose that you have, so you can have this victory pose of throwing your hands up or leaning back in your chair, and it actually stimulates the production of certain hormones that make you feel the way that you are. It, it's, it really is a fake it till you make it type of story here. There is some science behind this. And so, and, and so you can change the way you feel by the way that you act, and then it goes into the feedback loop. That's what I'm, uh, the, the evidence, the, the, there is evidence there that the way that you behave of, uh, physically, even just smiling, changes the hormones, the happy hormones, again, this is not my area, uh, <laughs> floating around in your bloodstream, making you thus happier. So if you tell a bad joke, you can be unhappy. Mm. <laughs> Only if no one laughs. <laughs> Brilliant. Did you, sorry, so did you want to ask a question up the back there? Oh, you, great. Just curious, is the genetic predisposition being sort of on the plane of discussion? For example, if you put yourself certain sequence of 10 people and genome map says this, and one of those 10 um, under normal dog's dog life situations will just drop out and commit suicide, the others can put them under the horrors and they will not commit suicide. So is it more of a genetic predisposition that our society is sort of on the plane? Uh, are you talking about suicide specifically, or? Yeah, I mean the the information on the genetics of suicide is fairly limited. I mean, as as you would imagine, if you think about natural selection, it's not going to be a behaviour that is selected for. So, so I, I suspect that it's that when we look at what the genetics of suicide, there's probably some other behaviour that has been selected that we are um, to look at. If we turn that around the other way as to what some of the heritability of factors like happiness are, there's an interesting one. We know that aspects of our personalities are inherited. Some of you will be more extrovert and others will be less extroverted, so more introverted. If I asked you who is more happy, the extroverts will say they're more happy. You reflect on that a minute. <laughs> I'm sure if you're an introvert, you'll probably be saying, they're just faking it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> if you're an extrovert, you're probably saying, but that's why I go to parties all the time. It's so, but it also highlights another aspect, I think, to look back to what we were talking about earlier, about what is happiness. You can think about if I was to ask one of you extroverts what do you mean by happiness, you're probably saying, well, it's this pleasurable state when I'm out there, I'm the life and the soul of the party, we're there, we're having a great time, everything's exciting. You say, that's happiness. If you ask an introvert, what's happiness? The introvert might say, you watch me playing chess. <laughs> you watch two people playing chess and they don't look like somebody <laughs> at a party. But if you ask them afterwards, were you having fun? They'll say, absolutely. They are not the same experience, but they are aspects of happiness, that, that flow, that experience of flow, when you're in the midst of something, when you're focused on something, the rest of the world all falls away, is a happy experience, which isn't the same. Mm. And so, I think, yeah. That's so, the experiential sort of thing that Michael was talking about before. Yeah, and can I just build on something? I mean, I think that's one of the, 
not the issues, but where you have to be cautious about, in economics, they talk about life satisfaction surveys. Because, you know, saying, the, asking the question, are you satisfied with your life? Often the phenomenological aspects drop out. So I can think of people that are um, by nature quite dour or just don't have, you know, if you're cashing out that um, positive effect in terms of, like, say, pleasure or joy or something like that, that nevertheless would be very satisfied with their lives on a life satisfaction scale. And the reverse is true. I have um, some of the issues with life satisfaction as it seems if, uh, you know, there's uh, a lot. There's a few issues with that. Firstly, with life satisfaction and a lot of the research around that, I, I believe that I think they can tell you important things, but you need to be cautious because the first part is that making a, a global evaluation of your life in terms of how satisfied you are. Um, something Daniel Hadron says is, you know, evaluating your life isn't like a gymnastics routine. Like, if you want to try and distill it down into a single number, it's going to be uh, partially arbitrary. Uh, and a lot of it's contextual. So there's a lot of research around life satisfaction surveys where, you know, if it's a sunny day opposed to a rainy day, if you're primed uh, by accidentally researchers have, like, um, you know, put some money there that you find on the street before you ask and that sort of thing, you know, you can be markably different on that scale. You know, oh, I'm, I, I'm normally a four, but now I'm a seven, I found five bucks, you know. Um, and not only that, that's the first issue that, um, you know, because when you're making a global assessment of your life, you're often, you're the goods and bads in your life are often incommensurable. It's very hard to look at your life in total and say, well, let's give it a score here. And the other issue with that is that, you know, uh, it's not just the sum of the goods and bads in your life that tell you, you know, how satisfied you might be with life. It's also the shape and trajectory of your life. So think it's a good, it's a good analogy, though, isn't it? Because everyone's got their own Russian judge, haven't they? Well, yeah. yes, <laughs> yes. But the shape and trajectory is very important as well. So things like uh, in philosophy, talk there's sort of cases what they call them uppies and downies lives. So think of a life that a first, and, and we could probably do this, so this is dangerous, Donald Trump found out earlier this week doing this on the run, but if we were to sort of ask the people in the audience, uh, like to do a thought experiment, so think of, think of two lives, so the first life is where you have a life that's an, a, a sort of downy life. Now, you start off and have a really happy childhood, a phenomenally happy childhood, your teenage years are great, but your life is sort of, you get more and more miserable, something might happen, you might have a few divorces, um, you know, you get a, a, a bad illness, you end up, maybe the last five or ten years of your life, you're in a really, um, you're in constant pain and just want to end it. But now think of the second type of life, which in the total of the life has more total happiness than that first sort of life, but starts off with a different trajectory that's going up. So... It's, uh, you know, you might start off, you had a terrible childhood, but slowly and inexorably over your life, you have achievements, you, you know, might meet your soulmate, you have children, though, as Andrew reminds me, that tends, um, the research is that it doesn't make you happy. I think it mm -hmm. adds a lot more meaning to your life, but it may not make you happy. Um, you know, but you, uh, you, your life continues in whatever professional career you have, and you end surrounded by your grandchildren, uh, loved by all, and you have a quick and painless death. Now, that second life, that second life, the uppy life, may have a less total happiness than the first life. But which would most of you have? So let's have a show of hands. Who would like the first life, the downy life, that has a higher happiness in total than the second life? Who, would, who here, hands up, would like that first sort of life, downy life? Tell us again what, what, what was the total happiness for the first life? Sure. Well, <laughs> phenomenally happy in the early years and maybe the middle years, but say like the last 10 years were in sort of, you know, you were in enormous excruciating pain. It was, you know, yeah. So, um, okay, well, who, hands up, who, hands up here would like the second life that starts off, you have less total happiness than the first life, but it has a shape and trajectory that, yeah. And that's generally the, what it is. So I think 
these and things. And that life is for sale at the door. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> All right. So thanks for coming, good luck. <laughs> anyway, so my, no, well, my well, point well, is well that we need to be cautious. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. What about, what about transferred happiness? Christina, coming back to you. So we started this with the knowledge that if you do two hours a week, what about if you don't do it, if you don't physically do it? Uh, you're a philanthropist or you're just altruistic or you're just, you know, too lazy. And, uh, and uh, you think, blow it, you know, I'll get the gardener to do it and I'll pay somebody. <laughs> yeah, I, because I, I'm just going to be really happy if I just sit in a chair and watch someone else paint that paint. You know. Is that the same same effect? I mean, so, what? are we talking about art? So, are you talking yeah. About... Oh, well... So, okay. So, you're saying that you're paying someone to do a painting for you, and you're going to watch them do the painting? Yeah. Well, I, I'm just. Well, I'm, 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 I'm not going to do it myself physically. I'm not going to personally do it, but I, yeah. I, I want someone else. I'm going to facilitate whichever way. Is All right. A... Well. If we step back then, so why is arts important? So what does arts give us? So first of all, if you engage in the arts, so this can be, you can be actually actively participating in it, so you can be making, making the art, or you can actually be more receptive, so you can be viewing the art, like say if you're going to a gallery. So you've got two types of ways that you can do this. Now, so if we take it back, like, I don't know where I'm going to go with this, really. No, kind no of got I, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, but yeah. I'm trying to sort of, I, 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 what I'm trying to do is, I guess, is vend in the spectator, you know, or the philanthropist. Yeah. Well, you can be a spectator when a it comes sports, to the arts. A sports spectator. So I'm going arts stroke sport. Yeah. Because I'd like yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. But we're oh, going to have to say that yeah. sport is not art. But okay. I think there should be a lot more arts in I WA, agree. but there's mostly totally sport. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm trying to sort of figure out there's an enormous percentage of the population we're leaving very unhappy, so I'm trying to bring them into the. Well, actually, the problem isn't that they're not engaging in the arts. The problem is actually that they don't realise what they're doing is art. So when we actually step them through a survey. We had actually 90 questions and you know, thank you to all the people who did it. We actually got a 71% response rate, so it was fabulous. But when you actually ask people individual questions like, you know, do you read novels? Do you go to the movies? Do you, you know, X, Y, and Z? We actually end up with, in our survey, we had 83%. The ABS says that it's actually 86% of people actually engage in the arts. Wow. Yeah, so it's just that they don't know what it is. And that's, you know, part of my research to actually help people realise that what they're doing is arts engagement and that there is actually this positive effect. And getting back to the resilience question. So when we first ask people, why do you engage in the arts? The first thing they say is, because it makes me happy. I mean, isn't that exciting? For consistently for people to say, why do you do it? Because it makes me happy. Then there's also a, a section of the population who actually use it as a way of staying happy. So they recognise that, say, they you know, might have depression or sadness. And so when they engage in the arts, so most of them say like theatre or choirs, singing in choirs, that what they were finding was that it would keep them in neutral or happy. And if they did get sad, it actually helped with their recovery. So this was actually a strategy that they were using. And there were, were a lot of positive benefits. In terms of those, so why does it make you happy? That was the point that I was making. <laughs> so, you know, it's about social inclusion. It's about networking. It's about confidence. It's about self-esteem. It's about the creation of good memories. So there, there's lots of positive aspects that the arts can actually give you, providing you're realising that what you're doing is the arts. So, you know, listening to music, 
playing a musical instrument. These are all things that we do as part of our everyday lives, but we just don't give it credit. So you're saying it's helping with that connectivity that, that Andrew mentioned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's actually it's, it's connecting us to other people. Yeah. And you know, one of the, the great things that you know, one of the people that I interviewed as part of my research was saying that she was doing an art class. So it was a, a TAFE course that she was doing. And it was a whole range of different people that were in her course. And there were people that say she might not have spoken to every day if it hadn't have been for this course. So she was just meeting such a range of people and also the age group. So, you know, young, older. It was just such a great opportunity to connect with the, with the community. I'm not going to give up on this transferred happiness because, Andrew, okay. Andrew, I want to come back to you about this. Oh, actually, I didn't answer your question, did I? So I think that... <laughs> I think... Are you sure you're not a politician? <laughs> <laughs> I've interviewed people like <laughs> I do think that if you're paying that person and you've got the artist there and they're painting a picture for you and you're interacting with the artist, because there's that social part of it and you're actually engaging in the art, I'm going to say that you are going to get some happiness from that. What does everyone else think? <laughs> yes. Yes, sorry, sorry, yes, sorry. Ask, you... It feels like there's a, either a mutually exclusive situation between happiness and meaning, the search for meaning in our lives. And I'm just wondering if any research has been done whether one feeds the other, one's a stimulus for the other, or if it's all just about stimulation. It's a great question. And is anybody want, can yeah, I I'm can I go to the question I was going to ask you though, which is a double question on your question? <laughs> I think question I'll for you. No, because because <laughs> this sort of buttresses into what I'm saying. So, the tra <laughs> pardon me for being OCD, but this transferable sort of. So, what I was going to say to you was the fears and the burdens that you talked about with people who had these suicidal tendencies. What if that was somehow directed so that their problems they were were sort of directed towards helping others sort out their problems rather than concentrating on their own and finding a different meaning to life through that, would their life have different meaning and ipso facto lead to a greater happiness state? Does that, is that yeah, I, I think, yeah, to answer the question about meaning, we can also speak to the question about, or the issue about uh, philanthropy as well, because I think what we find with um, happy people is they also tend to be people who have greater meaning and purpose in life. That's when it relates to that subjective sense about their well-being generally, not am I happy right now. So if, if, if we distinguish those, um, that the happiness that ebbs and flows from the, my general sense of how satisfied I am with my life. Those people who have a meaning and, or can articulate a, a, um, a meaning in their life will say, I'm more happy, more um, satisfied with my life. The, can, could we pay other people or do th to have our happiness for us? I think the answer is clearly yes. In that, it's not like having your sort of personal trainer where you can say, please do the exercise for me. <laughs> and you just look really good. No, but it's what, 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 how not to spend your money is if you like shoes, just then going out and buying a new pair of shoes because that leads to transient happiness, which is usually um, has completely gone by the time you get home and stick them in at home next to the pair of shoes you bought last week and one before that and so <laughs> forth. As a hint, you'll get more pleasure as you're shopping for the shoes than 
the happiness that you'll get after. So one thing is prolong the time that you are thinking uh, about making those nice, choices. Um, but if you spend your money on other people, that generates happiness. So you find people who will sponsor a child will get greater happiness from having invested that money and hearing about what their investment in that child will make them happy. So there are ways to spend your money that will give you more happiness. Very interesting, isn't it? Because and I think that comes back to the meaning and the purpose. It sounds life. like an old homily from my mother, you know, when you're feeling really bad, you're having a bad day, the best thing you can do is go and do something for somebody else. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mum. Sorry, Mum. I just wondered with your art questionnaire if I don't like, I say I don't like art, there's no form of art that I enjoy or like. However, I was driving to um, Kenyana Wildlife Park today out in Les Murdy and the sun was shining, the trees were glistening, I, I had the expectation that I might meet, I see a possum running past as I was driving there or a quenda or. And that just, I got there and I was explosive with happiness. To me, that's a form of art. And I'd even say sport is actually a form of art. Not according to the experts. Sophie, did you have questions like that in your questionnaire when you were asking about people's enjoyment? Sure. To be able to actually ask people, do they engage in the arts, we had to split it. So we had to split it into the different ways you can get, engage in the arts, so participation, attendance and so on, but then also the different types of art. And most people, most people will listen to music. So while you were driving, did you have the radio on? Oh, no. No, all right. Okay, so this is going to be a toughie, all right. <laughs> do, you read, do you read novels? Yes. That's literature. That's the arts. So you see what I mean? It's about realising that when... So when I'm saying two hours per week of arts engagement could be good for your mental well-being, so 15 minutes per day, do you read for 15 minutes per day? More. There you go. But, but you know, it's, so it's about realising. Realising, first of all, what is arts engagement? Realising what it is that you like, because different people like different things. So say I'm a visual artist, I like painting. So if I was to make you paint for 15 minutes a day, you'd probably hate that. That would make you very unhappy. <laughs> but, you know, and for me... I'm not really a reader, it doesn't hold my attention. So, you know, different people like different things. So it's about choosing or finding out what you like and then doing that. And also different people, so you say, you know, you might like books, but you might also like going to a gallery, which is, say, visual art. So we also have a preference, but then we also engage in different ways. Okay. So, yeah. That's great. Let's go to, sorry, Matt, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I this is, Bit controversial, but I'd say that arts is an is a instrumental good in the sense that it's um and going to your point that there's instrumental goods that are good because they lead to an intrinsic good, and one of the goods you're talking about is uh, the ultimate goods maybe like aesthetic values or aesthetic goods. So is an intrinsic good which informs that it sorry is an instrumental good which informs that intrinsic good which is aesthetic pleasure which deems to be something innate to humanity. But let's just put a writer on that. Sorry, but I just have to say this because it can't just be any old art, can it? It can't just be art, plural, you know, full stop, period. It has to because be the art that you like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's got to be genuine happiness. We're talking genuine happiness tonight. So if you're, <laughs> yeah. you know, 
when your wife says, you know, we're going to go to a four-hour concert at the you know, Festival of Perth, and I know and you don't like I, it's a bug thing or something, and I say, she says, are you happy about that? And I say, yes. <laughs> Very wise. Of course. So that has nothing yeah. to do that's with That's survival. That's not happening. <laughs> that has to do with marriage. Thank you. Sorry, Mike. No. Uh, hello yes, there. Um, you talked about uh, going to a film. I think you said movie. Going to a film uh, as part of your art. Okay, that's watching film. Is watching television in that because... Many people watch TV for hours. I'm certainly not prepared to dismiss artistic qualities where they might be. Great question. And a, and a lot of us in, feel some connectivity either with each other because we watch similar programs or we're discussing the programs that we've watched or because they give us a, a happiness relief from our own circumstances which mightn't be crash hot or what have you. Or, and or TV watching is a way to put yourself in other people's shoes, like, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm sure I don't need to list all the reasons why people get satisfaction out of watching TV. Um, where did that fit into your survey? And can I have a comment from any of the others in the panel as to what they think about the role of television watching? Because I heard a throwaway comment, well, maybe not a throwaway comment recently, that people should ask themselves, should they be doing something else than watching TV because it's acknowledged apparently that most of us watch a heck of, spend a heck of a lot of time watching TV. I, I'd like to, so firstly, did you have TV in your survey? Is it allowed in there? <laughs> and what does everyone else think of it? Because it's pretty, it's not an elephant in the room, but it's in the room, isn't it, surely? TV? It is in the room and it did get a measure. And there's a difference between, so you've got television and then you've got arts-related television, just like you've got movies and arts house movies. So it depends on what you're watching. But TV did get a score. I think on the scale it was like a two. But if it was an arts-related thing, then I think it got a higher rating. But TV was in there, yes. I wonder whether, and this relates to other comments here as well, whether uh, if we include all of this as uh, under the umbrella of arts or, you know, experience goods is what we would call it in economics maybe, then there are certain <laughs> types of, of or leisure activities that we engage in as an escapism. And sometimes a book will facilitate that and quite often watching reality TV will remind us that other people's lives are worse than ours. So that's <laughs> <laughs> it's all about comparisons and I could go on and on about that. And then there are other, other leisure experiences that we engage in because we want to engage, because we want to, to react to it and we want to reflect on it and we want it to change our minds about something. So when you watch a trashy thriller, it's just an adrenaline thrill. It's just an experience. But when you watch a, a very deep and meaningful movie, it might change your perspective of, of something completely. And that's almost like a mind-altering drug, right? So I, could, I would, as a complete bystander with no expertise, would say that we might distinguish between those types. And I don't think that one is any worse than the other, but they play different roles. And I think that if you are really down, if, you, if your life is really terrible and you feel terrible about it and you're having a sad time, then escapism might be very useful because it reduces your stress in the moment. And I would also think that in order to be able to experience the beauty of nature, 
like uh, driving along, along. Oh, no, I had those experiences myself, it's wonderful. But I have noticed that I am very rarely able to experience those things if I am stressed and unhappy. And that, so that being happy frees me up and opens me up to experience those things. So I think I can see a range of activities that serve different purposes. I think though one of the things that's interesting about the arts is that some activities relax you and it's about mindfulness, mm. but other activities energise you. Excite you, yeah. Yeah, so you know, singing might energise you, whereas say watching telly, it's about relaxing. And, and I think though beautiful. when it comes to the TV watching, it's the amount that we're doing while sitting. So. I don't know when it comes to the health promotion people. Maybe if we all stand, maybe they'll be happy. <laughs> do we have to distinguish between the pursuit of a happy life, as you were saying before, Michael, you know, the trajectory, I'm not saying you can be happy every single day of your life, but a more consistent happiness rather than these isolated happy moments that escape the stress temporarily. Is that for me or for you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, either of you, jump oh, in. I'm happy to give a bit of ill-informed opinion, uh, Liam. Um, I sort of build on something um, Andrew was saying before. I think that um, um, a meaningful life and the goods that are part of that meaningful life, um, happiness is very much a byproduct of that. So if your life has meaning, you're pursuing uh, projects and interests that resonate with you. And Susan Wolf has a nice way of saying it. She says that if your subject, subjective attraction meets objective attractiveness, then as a byproduct of that, um, you're nevertheless going to have uh, you know, happiness, however that's cashed out. So I think you know, pursuing happiness on its own may be counterproductive, but pursuing things that resonate with you as a byproduct of pursuing those things, you may get happiness. So. Whilst recognising it's okay to be sad. Yes. <laughs> but, but I don't want to get into too much of a controversial topic area here, but I just this is just on research, because I, I can see you, you know, keeping me honest, but the research has been around, especially in the last two or three years, a big pharma research about antidepressants. So we go from, I'm not making too much of a leap here, but I'm going from people thinking sadness becomes a depressive state, and I know medically that it's a far cry, but it's the perception and the rise and rise of antidepressants, and that's been the last few years especially, there's been a few big research topics. So again, coming back to Inga, the expectation of, you know, that's why it is sort of deadly serious, isn't it? Because the expectation of being happy continuously or vice yep. versa, not being sad. Can I just take a moment to blame Facebook for a lot of our happiness? Because it, it is just brag book, isn't it? It is a media where we just put these glossy pictures of our lives and when we read those comments, we don't, we don't see that. We just see, oh, that's a fancy holiday. Makes me feel bad. There's a lot of people doing this sort of research to find out what is to, how does social media affect our happiness. And that is one aspect of it that is not so nice, right? And so I think that uh, not just social media, but media in general is very good as, at uh, showing us what life should be. And so we keep comparing up. We don't often get the, you know, even in the book sections, you get how I rose from poverty to riches and how I made an amazing life doing bleep or blah. But it, where is the book about? Here's a perfectly okay, ordinary life. <laughs> That's what I seek, actually, because we need to lower our standards a little bit or we'll all be terribly unhappy. I think, actually, I can't remember exactly who said it, but what's the secret to a happy life? Keep your expectations low. <laughs> there is a truth to this. I, th and I, th I, think, I, I think that was Phil Dunphy from... Uh, <laughs> 
Modern Family. <laughs> but it is no, not that I watch too much TV. <laughs> what happens when your expectations meet reality. And, and, and there's, there is a biological basis for this because that happy region in your brain is a connector between your personal life goals and your pleasurable experiences of events. And when those two come together, it stimulates that happy region and you have a And so, how much power do you have over your external environment? Uh, probably less than you'd like. But you've got, I believe, because I'm an optimist, amazing amount of power over how you choose to perceive the world. And I think that's where, that's where the secret to a happy life really is. We're getting to the conclusion again. But I shouldn't have got to the end. But no, no, I good, think that's where, that, that's, that's where it, it all is. And if you read any self-help books these days, I think they're going in that direction yeah. about you can't change your circumstances very often. And there is an Isle of the Self-Help book section which is all about how you can change your life. Fair enough. Make yourself successful, earn a million bucks. And then the assumption is that that's going to make you happy. Maybe, maybe not. But I think the self-help books which are about how can you change the way you look at, your, uh, the way you perceive your life and react to what happens to you, I think they are going to give you a better bang for your buck. No, that's good. Well, I mean, yeah, I, look, I've cancelled my Instagram account because everyone's got a much better life than me. I, I know. <laughs> I'm actually not on Facebook anymore. I deleted my account, so oh, I am happy. There you go. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just detoxing yeah. from <laughs> Facebook at the moment. It's working really well. Can I just, I, just before we take a couple of last questions, Jenny, I just wanted to ask you again. So, going back to that stimulation, you mm. mentioned electric stimulation, but, and I'm sorry to harp on about it, but drugs, in the sense of, is there an artificial way of making us happy that we know of or could potentially be? I mean, happiness in a bottle, is it possible? Well, we know from the, the experience of antidepressant drugs that they don't work for everybody. And much, I think this is a re recurrent theme, we're all different and our brains are, work slightly differently, they're balanced slightly differently from a chemical point of view. So I think expecting a magic bullet treatment to produce happiness chemically in the brain is probably unrealistic. And then you've also got the issues of satisfaction, networking, interaction with the outside world. If you take a drug, you're not really going to do that. You know, there, there wouldn't be any meaning anymore, and there, it would just be a constant state of happiness, which is maybe not meaningful. Have and they? they, have they, they sorry, something. Christina, but just to mm. quick, have they measured that, 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 or can they? Is it possible to measure that difference between happiness and pleasure that we refer to? There are different parts of the brain. So there are pleasure centers in the brain and there are more sort of vague happiness centers in the brain and the chemical triggers that trigger pleasure are very well known and it's possible to uh, stimulate those and to evoke feelings of pleasure. So they are definitely separate? They are separate. There is some overlap and they're definitely connected. Everything in the brain is connected, but they are separate regions. Sorry, Christine. That idea of social interaction though, I think is very important. So in the UK, they've now got arts prescriptions. So if you do go to your doctor and say you are depressed, some GPs have got links now with their arts organisations and you, will, you might get the antidepressant, but you're also going to get a script to also go and, go and join that choir, go and you know, do a visual arts course, go and listen to your music, so that you're actually doing other things. You're not just relying on that drug. Or is that because national health is broke? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, I suspect that a lot of what has to do with my happiness, because I'm a very happy person, has, has to do with my Puerto Rican heritage. And maybe some of that has to do with the traditions of salsa dancing and samba dancing that I do, and I 
get into the subculture here in Perth, but I'm curious what the panel would think of all these rankings and ratings of the different countries, whereas, you know, some of the Latin American countries always seem to be at the top of those rankings. It's a great question. I'd be happy to jump in there, and I think that's one of the, um, one of the issues with um, uh, life satisfaction surveys and saying, look, how satisfied you are with your life or how happy you are, a lot of the, between countries. So it may very well be you take a country like, let's say, let's look at America, because, you know, they're... So let's look at the mythology around the meritocracy. So, you know, if you have an initiative and enterprise, you can get ahead. It's a, it's a positive can-do place. It may very well be that... Uh, you know, someone uh, it, to, to not affirm your life by saying you're satisfied would be, you know, really deep, deeply distressing to someone. So, what are they culturally? I think it's, a, it, it's often a really good point. So, someone in America might go to not affirm my life, given that I can do anything, and you know, um, and give it a say a seven. And you might get someone in, and this is a gross caricature, but let's say it's a, a southern Mediterranean country where uh, the culture and ethos may be more like, "Don't get me started." You know, I'm going <laughs> to, you want to know what's wrong with this place? I'm going to tell you. And they might give themselves a four, but in reality, they may very well be just as happy or just as satisfied. And so I think you've brought a really great question out, those cultural aspects. And um, thank you for that. Or maybe it's the arts. Maybe it's all that dancing. Because <laughs> <laughs> that dancing is done mental. I better um, jump in or I might miss out. Uh, that idea of flow that was mentioned earlier um, and moments of flow, sort of where time can bend a few minutes, can seem like an hour, or an hour can seem like five minutes reading a book or, or hiking through nature, or whatever it may be. I'm interested in what the impacts of, um, and going back to pleasure and Facebook, the impacts of modern technology where you're instantly accessible and all these, these pleasurable disruptions to flow where there's almost this Pavlov effect where you're anticipating the disruption so you can experience that pleasure. What the impact of that might be on these meaningful moments of flow and happiness? I think if I can just make a comment, I think that's an excellent question and it's something that a lot of neuroscientists have discussed with a lot of, I wouldn't say excitement, but perhaps trepidation and fear. We don't know what our brains are going to look like in 20 years. Us as adults, our brains will change because of that and children will change even more because of that and what their perception and experience and expectations of happiness, we don't know what they'll be. And people say, oh, it's going to be terrible, it's going to be the end of the world, but it may not be. It may be something better, we don't know. But that change is happening right now, and in terms of evolution of happiness, I think it's a really exciting topic. So. That's a really hot question. You should probably do a PhD. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. I'm just going to say that would get published in top journals. Yeah. Why not? I mean, everyone's got one. <laughs> and is it making us happy, though? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, yes, up the back. Thank you. Um, I'm interested um, what all the panel might think about the point in where uh, accumulative happiness from, from incidents, so let's say the law of diminishing marginal utility throws in there for an economics phrase, as to what point accumulative, where, where does happiness stop? Where does it stop being happy? That's good. That's, another good, that's a great question. I mean, it's the Maslow hierarchy sort of stuff, isn't it? Mm. Wants and needs. Where do we stop? Well, I can talk about the marginal utility of stuff. <laughs> but the diminishing... Not, not about that. Uh, when you're talking about summing behaviour, so uh, for those of you who've done some economics, uh, and lucky you, uh, you, will, you may know that it, it, one of the assumptions we make is that we humans are wandering around with these calculators on our heads, and we tally up the happiness that we have every given moment, which we get from consumption, and then at the end of our life, we've got a bank. 
And that's how happy we are. And our task in life is to maximise that lifetime utility. That's pretty much what we go on. Uh, and, and, and we are getting better at this. But, uh, so, but so the answer, you know, how, how well does that match with real life? And you would all tell me that's ridiculous. But then come up with it and then we will answer, well, then give us, the, give us the evidence. And the evidence is that if you study people's experiences of uh, different occasions, it might be a pleasurable thing or it might be a, an unpleasurable thing. Uh, is that a word? I don't know. Uh, something that hurts. And so what they find, uh, and this is Daniel Kahneman, I think, and his colleague, and he won a Nobel Prize for this, so it's not rubbish research. Um, he found, and this had a very, very big impact, he found that it's not actually, would you believe, a summed uh, momentary utility integral calculus thing that we do in our heads. We actually take some shortcuts, because the brain is not a calculator, and we, we put extra emphasis on the high point and the end point. So going by that, it's not about maximising lifetime utility or happiness. It's about having many pleasurable moments with the arts, presumably, <laughs> and ending on a really good note. <laughs> That's what it's all about. I don't know whether that answers your question. <laughs> can, I, can I jump in and just add like a point on that diminishing marginal return and how you sort of... I think there's two really important parts to that. And the first is that there's some really interesting research in a, a book I'd recommend to you by some Harvard psychologists in Andrew's field um, called Happy Money by um, Elizabeth Dunn and um, a Michael Norton. And they talk about constructive ways that the social sciences, and particularly psychology, have said about how we spend money. Uh, and there may be ways, constructive and useful ways, we can spend money to make us happier. And on that point, one of his points is that, look, if you can... Um, create an artificial scarcity rather than having something as a necessity, you can, in a sense, re-virginise purchases. So I'll give you an example um, that. So, like, I love coffee. This is the coffee they're using. And I, I love bought store coffee. I have that every day. After all, I just have it as a necessity. And, and the joy I get from that it diminishes. Uh, and now I just do it as, like, a habit. But if you were to, like, create an artificial scarcity in your life by, OK, I'm just going to have like, store-bought coffee once a week, you can really regain that joy in that. So I think that's the, the first point in terms of some practical wisdom for today. And the second part, I think you've opened a question, which probably not one for today, but the environment and the, uh, the sort of the culture and the political system we work in very much structure that. So there's a lovely anecdote from Lawrence Vanderpost, the African explorer, and he's lost in the Sahel and he's, he's got no water and they're, uh, they're just about to die. And this indigenous tribe saves them and takes them to this watering hole. And at, at, to try and show their gratitude, Lawrence Vanderpost is trying to give this, these people, um, these hunter-gatherers, like his coat. And he can't understand why they don't want this coat. And eventually it dawns on him. The way their society works is, I don't want 100 coats because I've got to carry them 10 k's every day. <laughs> I don't want 50 Ferraris. I don't want because the way your society works and very much informs that. And I think that's maybe one thing we haven't talked about today, how much happiness isn't pursued in isolation. We're inherently social animals, and the culture we live in and the country very much informed. Good point. Right, a couple more questions, ladies and gentlemen, before we go. Yes, sir, right in the middle. Yeah, I was just wondering, uh, happy people are those people who generally uh, set themselves small challenges all through their life, every day or every uh, often anyway, and they're always uh, setting themselves these challenges and maybe achieving 80% or a fairly high percentage because they wouldn't want to set it too high. And, uh, and the happiness comes from achieving those things. But that can quickly turn sour, can't it? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I was thinking, what did I say before? Put your, keep your expectations low. Um, <laughs> just sit back and expect nothing. No, I think you're absolutely right. But I think, though, that the, uh, I, my perspective is that the pleasure or the meaningfulness or whatever you want to call it that we get from uh, those activities is in the setting the goal and getting there. And quite often you'll find, you know, and people who have done a PhD may have felt this, that once they have accomplished something big, or you're climbing Kilimanjaro, and you're standing up there and you're going, hmm, oh, oh, what's next? What am I going to do now? <laughs> and so, and, and it helps to be aware of that so that you don't expect that it's that moment that's going to give you the bliss. If you know that it is a journey there and the fact that every time you fall back, uh, fall behind, you make a mistake, you're going to pick yourself up again and you get, uh, train yourself to, to get satisfaction from that and knowing and recognising it, that then you might be able to circumvent the problem, the anticlimax of, oh, well, I've done that now, what am I going to do next? So I think you're absolutely right because in order to have meaningful lives, we need to achieve things and feel that we're doing valuable things and things that um, we get self-actualisation out of, to use a term from psychology. Um, yes. So, I, I wouldn't say keep your expectations, but you know, I'm try not to go on Facebook that. too much. <laughs> I am a happy person, but I do things every day to stay happy. So say, on my way to work, I sing in the car. That makes me happy. When I get to work, I'm happy. I don't mind if people are, you know, driving in front of me, because, you know, I'm singing. It's fine. And I also should say I don't sing well, which is why I'm singing in the car by myself. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I also, you know, so painting, I know that, you know, I enjoy those sorts of things. And it's also, for me, and in my, my research, I'm following my dream. I, I think I'm doing something that's meaningful. So I think when you are doing something that's meaningful, and like, even when it comes to my PhD, I loved my PhD all the way through, even when I was writing up. Because, you know, the, and, and that's unusual. <laughs> um, but I think it's about doing, you know, like what you were meant to be doing. I think it's about being authentic to yourself. But you sound like you're one of those sickeningly happy people. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Are you slightly on happy people like that. <laughs> unhappy. <laughs> but, you know, when we're living in a time where, you know, one in five Australians will experience mental illness this year, when burden of disease in terms of, of mental health, the only thing above that is cardiovascular disease and cancer, I think we need to start making an effort to think, okay, my mental health is important, today I'm going to do something to actually stay happy. That's a good point. It's the biggest non-fatal disease, isn't it, now in Australia? Yeah, biggest non-fatal burden of disease. Thank you, Christine. And just, we're almost out of time, ladies and gentlemen. Just one more question over here, please. Uh, Sarah, if you've got the mic, and up to the gentleman with his hand up there. Um, you know, that's a great point, though, about lowering the bar. I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try it. I reckon it'll work for me, because I go to work anyway trying to do nothing. Oh. And, the, and the boss says, wow, you've done something, I'm happy. You know, At least one of us is happy. Yes, I'm kind of interested in whether you think um, happiness is a comparative thing. So, I, you know, I believe I'm a happy guy and I have a, a terrific life, but uh, it would be easy for me to think that if I play, I don't know, three or four ACDC tracks every day, and maybe look at my bank account and find two million dollars in there, I'm going to be a happy guy. But do I need to occasionally experience sadness to know how happy I am? Yeah, that's great. great we point. differ on this. We've had this debate constantly. <laughs> so it's the recalibration. I thought we agreed. 
Do you need to hey, recalibrate? I, we I don't agree with any of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, it's, definitely t- it's definitely time to wrap up. It's going, it's going pear-shaped. No, no, but uh, can, yeah, would everyone I, like I, to put yeah, in I, on that? I, I can speak to that. I mean, I think um, we've been talking about what makes us happy, but it's while we might want to engage in life in activities that generate happiness, none of us probably want to be happy all of the time. If we lose somebody who we love dearly, we want to be sad. We would feel cheated if we were happy at that time. We, and if somebody from Big Pharma came and said, there's this pill that can take this away from you, you'd probably say, no, I want to have that experience. That is that, that genuine experience. There are some experiences that um, are suffering a sadness that are part of life that we would say to not live a genuine life, we would lose something to not have those. So I think that in the context of the pursuit of happy, happiness, there's also an understanding of the place of sadness the place of what we can learn during suffering um, that will also change how we view um, events that are happiness are, are happy. And it also relates to the point as well that um, happiness probably isn't just coming from something. Like we were talking earlier, Let's, if, if we just assume for a moment that um, your level of happiness was a function of how much money you had. So let's say you had, um, you have $1 million and the person sitting next to you also has $1 million. Then that would mean we should all be equally happy. But let's say yesterday you had half a million dollars and due to the vagaries of the share market, you now have $1 million. But the person sitting next to you yesterday had one and a half million. And now they've got a million. You can see that you won't have the same level of... Um, that, that happiness um, won't be the same. There's something more sweet, it seems, in terms of happiness, having when you've gone up than when you drop down. And, and so it's that change that is going to change our experiences. It's not just a product of where you are now, it's also taking into account where you've been. So there is that journey in life. And what um, the work that um, Kahneman has talked about, unfortunately, is that events that make us happy will increase happiness by this much, but those that make us unhappy Will, will proportionally make us more unhappy than the same amount that increases our happiness. So there is this inclination to more pull you down than to pull you up. And so that will be the experience of life. So I think it's not unreasonable that we want to seek happiness, but there will be times when we will be absolutely perfectly happy to be sad and other times when you need to put an ACDC track on. Highly recommend <laughs> That's right. It's really well put. Um, and, so, and I was just going to say, so uh, I agree with every single word you've said, except I still don't believe the person who says winning the lotto will not make you happy. It does, but only for about six months or so. <laughs> on a jackpot. Sorry. Come on. 
<laughs> and, and one thing you should not do if you win um, um, a lot of money on um, the lottery is move. That's what lots of people do. Yeah. They move away to the big fancy house they want to, suddenly find they've lost all of their friends. So you'll find that winning lots of money, people who will stay engaged and spend the money on their friends, on their family, find meaning in that, will be happier than those who... So, yes, if you win it, spend it wisely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have to leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been a great audience. Thank you very much for your patience.